my name is Grant, if we haven't met before, um, and yeah, I'm one of the pastors here at Harbour City, and today is the 26th of January, so it's still pretty close to the beginning of the year that you could be feeling full of optimism and excitement and enthusiasm about what the year ahead holds. So for Shell and I, as I'm sure you noticed as my wife was up front here, this is quite a big year of change for us. You might have a bigger year. This will probably be one of the biggest years of change of our lives. We are moving next week to a new apartment after living in the same building for eight years. And then about a month after that, we've got a baby girl on the way. So I know I have showed this before, but I'm a little bit proud. So if Zach, I could ask you just to put that little uh, photo up on the screen. This is our daughter-to-be. Well, that's actually just a beautiful welcome graphic. (laughs) But I believe there will be a picture up in no time. But anyways, that picture comes up. We'll just leave that. If, if she comes, she comes. If not, it's fine. But basically, we've been praying for this little girl since we found out. Uh, we're excited about her. We've been talking about names, dreaming about the kind of person she's going to be, and just honestly cannot wait to meet her, you know? I uh, just, I know I haven't been through this yet, but the thought of holding this little girl and just thinking about the potential of what lies inside of her and what the future holds is very, very, very cool. But I do know that in five weeks when she comes everything is going to change. Everything is going to change. And all of my friends who um, are a little bit further down the road, some of them who are older parents who've got kids as old as I am now, have been saying, Grant, it's going to be hard. It's going to be lots of nappies, lots of like wake-ups throughout the night. It's going to stretch you, but enjoy every moment because it goes so fast. And for me, I think I'm going to be like, that's rubbish. You know, this baby's going to be here forever. And I know in 32, 34, however, 50 years, I'm going to be looking back thinking, where did the time go? And this little baby who will be born in a little bit will all of a sudden be this independent, intelligent, strong woman doing what God has called her to do in the world, maybe with her own family, maybe with her own kids one day. And I'll think, where is the time gone? But that's a big process of change. I mean, thinking of uh, what would have been like a photo of the baby in the womb all the way to this grown-up woman someone who's completely dependent on mom and dad for everything, from every bit of food to every change to just care and investment to being this self-sufficient, strong, capable woman. That is massive, massive change. And how does that happen? I mean, you've got to think of all of the little milestones or all of the little steps that lead from baby to woman. So that is all the wake-ups in the middle of the night, all of the change nappies, all of the conversations. That involves us having to comfort her when she kind of falls over and skims her knee and gets that first roasty. It involves lots of conversations. And, and as she starts to walk and talk, probably a lot of questions. I'm sure you guys have noticed those kids are in the question phase. And everything is, why? Why this? Why that? Why does it work this way? I'm sure we'll have those moments. I think we're going to have hard conversations where we have to discipline our child. And I'm pretty sure mom and dad are going to cry afterwards, even though we know it's in her best interest and that she needs it. She'll probably do 12 years of school. Maybe she'll choose to study afterwards. Maybe she'll do a degree, maybe two. She takes after her mom. She'll be winning beauty pageants, just be the most adorable woman. And if she takes after her dad, she'll probably live under a bridge and eat billy goats and be a full-on troll. But that's absolutely okay. And one day, after all of that effort and that investment, Shell and I are going to say goodbye to her. And we're going to watch this little girl leave home, capable, able to live her own life, do her own things, and not need us anymore. And that's success, but I know it's going to break our hearts, and we're probably going to be crying our eyes out on that day. And I say that all because today we start this new How We Change series. And it is a massive process thinking about that development. 
this little girl growing, maturing, changing to become a woman, and all of the little steps in that process. And I guess all of the investment that has to go into that transformation that is similar for us in a spiritual sense. I think as I think about that change, I also think about the fact that I'm getting old. I turned 34 this week, so I'm getting a little bit older. It's my birthday. And I have absolutely no problem with getting older at all. I'm hoping to be a silver fox. I know there's some of you in the crowd who've seen Steve Carell's new look. He looks absolutely amazing with that silver hair. It's going to be me in a few years. My fear is not with getting older. I think my fear is with not aging well. I think how many of those people do you know who've gotten older and have not gotten better with age? They've kind of become cantankerous and calcified in their ways of doing things, and you don't want to be around them. And as Shell and I were talking about this recently, I do not want to get older and become one of those people that people whisper about and say, just don't mind him. That's just the way he is. Don't say anything. (laughs) Shell's already saying that to people about me. (laughs) I want to change well. I want to develop. I want to grow up. I want to keep improving because there's a bunch of things in my life that I'm not happy with. There's a bunch of things I want to adjust and change. I'm still becoming the person that I want to be. It's a big process for me. And my guess is that you're the same. My guess as we go into 2020 is that there's some areas in your life that you're wanting to change and someone that you're wanting to become. So as we start this series, I want to ask you, how do you want to change in 2020? And secondly, and I think this is more important, how does God want you to change in 2020? What is it that he's highlighting in your life that he's wanting to work on and change? Our plan with this series is to spend about nine weeks going through this together and uh, really looking at what the Bible has to say and get God's wisdom on how we actually change. Because sadly, I cannot give you a quick two-minute summary today. I wish there was something I could put up on the screen, which is just an all you need to know about how to change. You can take a photo, keep it on your phone, go out and do it. But this is quite an involved question and answer. So we're going to take nine weeks to work through all of this together. But before I start answering that today, I want to clear up a few things about what this series is not because I think that's really important for us. The first thing is that the wrong way to see this series as we start, whether you feel excited about this or not, is to think that this is a series about how to become a good person. That's not what the series is at all. I think for a lot of people, they think Christianity, God's idea for what he wants from religion and his people, is that we, we would be good people. But the reason Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross and taught what he did and all of those things was not so that we would be nice to one another. It's a little bit more involved and a little bit deeper than all of that. So this series is not going to be a try harder, do more, be better, blood, sweat, and tears, effort kind of guilt trip series. That's kind of the gospel of New Year's resolutions. That is not the gospel of Jesus. So it's not going to be that kind of series at all. And secondly, the other wrong way to look at the series is that this is a God will love you and bless your life if you become a better person kind of series. That's the prosperity gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus. We're not going to be going into that. And actually, the gospel says that we already have God's love, which is an amazing thing. The series isn't about earning God's love and doing more and more so he will like you. Actually, the gospel says wherever you stand with God today, God loves you. He loves you already. So we're not going to try and earn God's love, but we want to learn to live from God's love. And if you're anything like me, then you probably need to hear that repeated again and again and again. You don't have to earn God's love. God loves you already. And in Jesus, he is very, very, very fond of you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The series is also not about perfection. 
I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I'm pretty hard on myself. But the bad news I want to tell you today is you are never going to be perfect. This is not a series about how to be perfect, but it is a series about progress. It is a series about change. It is a series about process and how we take those steps. But this is not a series about perfection at all. And sadly, if you do look around the room at everyone here, the other bad news is that no one else in this room is perfect. Everyone else is flawed. You might be going, I need this series. I want you to know everyone else in this room does too. We all need to change. We've all got some areas to grow into. So if that's what the series isn't about, what is the series about? Why are we spending so much time on this stuff? Well, firstly, I want to say whether you believe in Jesus or not today, this series is for you. This is a series for people who've grown up being in church every Sunday, dragged there since they were born. And it's a series for people who've never been in church on a Sunday before. This is a series for everyone. But I need you to know up front that as we speak about how we change, we are starting with a point of view that change begins with Jesus. This is going to be a Jesus-centered approach to how we change. So over the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is focusing on God's work in all of this. How we change involves God's work and our work, but we're going to lay a foundation of what God does to help us change before we get into anything of what we do ourselves. And I think that's really going to help you. I guess the other part of that is that the Bible changes us, teaches us that change begins with Jesus. And I'm going to get into that in a bit. But I think there's going to be a lot of practical ideas and wisdom that you can glean from the series and you can apply to your life that will help you and it will make your life better. But I think the challenge I want to put out at the beginning of the series is that if you just kind of take the wisdom, if you just take some of the principles, if you just take some of the ideas, yes, it will make your life better, but it will not change your life at the deepest possible place. If you kind of leave Jesus out, if you take God out of this how we change stuff, the change you most desire, that inside out kind of change, is not going to happen inside of you. Secondly, this is not a how to lose weight and how to get fit series as much as I would love that to be. I could use that preaching series. Any amens in the room? Come on. I've got one. I've got two. Okay, I'll take those. The series isn't on that stuff. This isn't a series on mental health how to break addictions, how to get a job, how to find a romantic partner, how to get rich, or whatever it is that you might be wanting, and I'm sorry about that. This is not a self-help series. This is not a life coaching series. This isn't a free psychology session series. You're going to have to go to someone else for those things. This series is focused on what the Bible teaches about change and looking at some of the things that God has to speak about, our change or sanctification, which is kind of the fancy theological Bible word for how we transform more and more into the image of Jesus. And that does mean that there might be some stuff you need to do out of our Sunday meetings and our life groups and out of the life of this church to help you grow in other areas. You may need to get a gym membership this year. You may need a new eating plan. You might need to see a psychologist or a doctor or a counselor. You might need to go and find a financial advisor who can help you put a budget in place and start to save some money. Or you might need to like, get a good friend, a mentor, someone wiser than you who can help you in some areas where you need to grow. But I do want to promise you that as we go through the series and as we look at what Jesus has to say about this stuff and as you apply this to your life, that you will grow in living in the life that is truly life. Jesus promises life and life to the full. And that is one of the things we're going to find more and more as we go through this together. So how do we change? Dallas Willard is a fairly well-known preacher and philosopher and writer about Christian change and discipleship. And I think he probably summarizes this better than anyone else with three letters. So I think you'll remember it. 
we change with a bit of vim. V-I-M. Vision, intent, and means. So what does he mean by that? Well, vision is where it all starts. When we're talking about change and how we do all of this, we need to have a picture of where we're going. We need to have a picture of who we're becoming and the kind of person that we want to be. Otherwise, we don't really know how to get there. And I think that's how most of us start the new year, you know? The, the year's ended. We know it's been bad about it. We know what we don't want to do again. And we think, okay, this is the kind of year I want in 2020. Maybe some of you even put together like a vision board or like a dream board for the year ahead. I don't want to embarrass anyone like Noxie over there, but she put that on Instagram. Her and her buddies getting together and doing this whole vision board thing. But that really is the idea that Dallas Willard has got out there, is that we've got to have this picture of the kind of person that we want to become. And if you are a Christian, that picture should look a lot like Jesus. The second thing is intention. We need to have a desire or will to change. And I think that sounds pretty obvious. You know, if you're here today, you probably do desire to change. But how often is it that maybe we've got a vision of like how we want to change, who we want to become, what we want to do, but actually we don't have the will to change. We don't want to pay the price that it's going to cost. I remember a few years I was in a place and someone had kind of done this beautiful street on on this wall that said, the dream is free, but the hustle will cost you everything. And I think that's part of what this series is about. It's, it's easy, it's cheap, it's free to have a vision of your future, of who you want to become, of what God has called you to. But becoming that is going to cost you. It's going to require change and effort and discipline and a few other things along the way. And then the final thing in Vim is means. That's the way we change. The things we need to put in place in our life. How we get from A to B. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about that over the next nine weeks. So with all of that in mind, how do we change? If you've got a Bible here, can I ask you to turn to Romans 8 verse 1 today? We're mainly going to look at two verses this morning, but I do want to encourage you. Romans 8 is a very significant chapter in the Bible. Shell was teasing me that this is like a full theology nerd comment, but there's this reality that um, some guys have written and said, if Romans is the Himalayas of the Bible, then Romans 8 is its Mount Everest. It's very lame, very, very nerdy. But this is a beautiful, beautiful chapter. This is worth working through, reading through, thinking about, and praying that God would uh, put into place in your life. So Romans 8 verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Very simply, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know what stands out to you there, but those words, no condemnation, leap out to me. Those words leap off the page at me. Those are powerful words. Those are legal terms that he's using there. It's like Paul wants us to have this picture in the courtroom of God. The gavel goes down, bang, bang, bang. And God declares, even though he knows that you're guilty, and you know that you're guilty, you know that you've sinned, and he knows that you've sinned, he declares and says, innocent, not guilty. He says, you are acquitted, pardoned, freed, justified of your sin, which is an amazing thing that God would do. And that means that if you're in Christ here today, God doesn't hold your sin against you anymore. God is not angry with you, and you are no longer under any condemnation from God. I think a lot of people struggle to believe that. Romans 8 verse 1 says that God has nothing against you, and you do not owe any debt or have to pay any penalty to make him happy. Does anyone in this room condemn themselves ever? I do. She'll tease me this week because um, of just such a silly thing that happened. I Skyped a friend of mine. He's a pastor. He actually ordained me as a pastor in Red Point Church. And I was Skyping him on Tuesday night. 
And afterwards, I think I was chatting to Shell and Brendan, and I mentioned this moment that happened about four years ago. He was preaching here at this church, and he made a comment about his anniversary, and he said how he was going to get to spend it in Paris with his wife. It's like, that sounds like the dream. And I got up at the end of the service, and I said, have a wonderful anniversary in Paris with your wife. But that was something that had happened like seven years before. I felt like such an idiot. You know, I thanked this guy and made this comment. And all of you are sitting there going, what's the big deal about that? Like, that's such a small mistake. But Shell's saying, Grant, why after four years are you still beating yourself up about that really dumb little thing? And I know that's dumb. I, like, I know it makes absolutely no sense. But I know that you do exactly the same thing. In these little ways, we condemn ourselves over stupid things that we say and do. And I'm not even talking about the big things. We live under self-condemnation in so much of life over things that we say and do and shouldn't have said and shouldn't have done and regret and things that we wish that we could change. But what Paul says to us in Romans 8 verse 1 is from God's side towards you, there's no condemnation. None. In little ways, in big ways, God is not condemning you. Although you might condemn yourself, God does not condemn you in Christ. And he's able to do that because on the cross, Jesus took all of the condemnation you deserved on himself. He was found guilty for you and he was punished for you that you don't have to deal with that. But it gets even better. Romans 8 verse 1 doesn't say there is no condemnation now for you in Christ Jesus. It just says there is no condemnation. Have you seen that before? The verse says, now there is no condemnation. And if that is what it said, that would be good news, but not nearly as good. Because it would be saying that, cool, today, on the 26th of January 2020, your slate is clean, you are fine before God, but... Every moment thereafter, you have to live under conscious fear that you're going to mess up and God is watching and he will know. And then there will be at least some condemnation for you in Jesus. And I think that's often the view that people have of Christianity is we think God is this policeman in the sky, this judge in the sky. And he is watching with his heavenly CCTV system everywhere you go. And he's sitting there just waiting, waiting for you to mess up. And then this booming voice will come from heaven. Some condemnation for you in your life. But Paul says this is not just now, as if this is provisional. Like, if you mess up, it's gone, and this is no longer true. He says there is no condemnation now and ongoingly. This is a permanent state that you live in before God, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. There is no condemnation for you and Jesus for the rest of your life if you are in Christ. It's pretty good news, eh? So I guess the big question you need to answer is, am I in Christ today? Because there's nothing else that you need to do. There's no other proviso for how you live in this reality. It's not be a really good person. Don't do these sins, you know, these five or six really bad ones. Stay away from these people or places. All Paul writes is that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. This is true for you. So are you in Christ today? I think like the struggle I have, if I can let you into my inner life some more, is that I know that's true up here. But I also know my sins and my mistakes and my mess-ups and my flaws and my motives and my terrible thinking about some people and things at times. I know how I fail every single day at this. So I struggle to believe no condemnation is true for me because I know I really do deserve condemnation. And Paul, the apostle, the guy who wrote the book of Romans, he experienced exactly the same thing. He says in two of the most controversial verses in the whole of the Bible, Romans 7, verse 15 and 18, I do not understand my own actions. Get this. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Hey, Vision, intent, desire, will. I've got the desire to do it, but not the ability to carry it out. I'm sure a number of us in this room feel that way, whether you follow Jesus or not today. Now, I I know what I should be doing. I I know the life I want to live, but I keep finding myself again and again slipping into bad habits and things that I shouldn't be doing. And then we kind of give up. I can't change. I can't do this. I can't be who God wants me to be. Because in your own strength, that's true. You can't. You can't be that person. To truly change, we need a new life. And we need to begin with this new foundation of what Paul has spoken about in Romans 8 verse 1. This new foundation of God's love and his acceptance and his grace and the new identity that he's got for us in Christ. You see, if you are a Christian here today, and if you're not, we're going to give you an opportunity at the end of this time to become a Christian and begin following Jesus. But if you are one today, then that means in Christ, God sees you as a son or daughter. He loves you. He's pleased with you. You're forgiven. You're chosen. You're perfect. There's all of these amazing identity pieces to who we are in Christ. That is your new identity. And we don't live for that identity. We don't live for that approval. We live from it. We live out of who we already are in Christ. It's incredibly good news. Now, I know some of you are saying, cool, Grant, got it. Yeah, you kind of say this message every week in different ways. So I hear what you're saying, but this isn't very practical for us, you know. You said practical, how we change series. I get it. Great theology warms my heart, like lightens my load. I feel good. But how does this actually help me to change? Thank you for asking such a generous question. The reason that this is really important is that you and I cannot become something that we are not. Does that make sense? We can't become something that we are not. We become who we are and not who we want to be. So there's this old famous saying in our culture that says a leopard cannot change its spots. And the Bible agrees. It doesn't say it in there, but the Bible agrees. A leopard cannot change its spots. We are who we are. So for instance, my car is a beautiful navy blue Toyota Taz. I love it. It's a zippy car. It gets around quickly. It's very useful. Put the seats down. It's been a very faithful church bucky. It loves to serve me. I've joked often that it's a workhorse. This thing can get the job done. And I know that it wants to treat me well. It loves me. You know, it wants the best for Shell and I. It wants the best for our life. But that car cannot do certain things. And it would be wrong for me to expect it to do certain things. That car cannot be a submarine for me. That car cannot be an airplane for me. There's no engage submarine button, engage plane button. And if I try to take my car underwater... My insurance will not pay me out. It'll stay at the bottom of the harbor, and I will never drive it again. That car is a car that cannot do certain things. Or imagine that I was a dog person, and I had a dog. I'm sorry. Animals are beautiful. I'm just not a big dog person. But imagine I had this amazing dog, man's best friend, can do all the tricks, lies at my feet, brings me my slippers, takes such good care of me. And one day I go, Fido, as good as you've been to me, as well as you've treated me, I've decided I'm a bird person. I want a parrot that can keep me company and speak to me. Like one of those beautiful, colorful red macaws. just going to brighten up our home and change our lives. But it's unfair to get rid of you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you to be the parrot that we want in this home. I'm going to dress you up in an expensive outfit, beautiful beak, 
I'm going to take you to expensive elocution lessons so that you can learn to squawk like a parrot. I'm going to sit you in front of the TV and show you birds flying all day so that you learn how to do it. I'm going to stop feeding you dog food and stop start feeding you seed. I'm going to expect you to become this bird. That dog's never going to do that. A dog cannot be a parrot. No matter how much it loves me, no matter how much it wants to serve me, and no matter how much it wants to change, it would be unfair for me to expect that dog to be my new parrot. Dogs chase cars. They wee on fire hydrants. They stick their head out the window and their tongue goes while the car is driving. That's what Fido wants to do. He doesn't want to try and sit on a perch and squawk and eat crackers. And similarly for every one of us, we cannot be something that we aren't. And it would be unfair of God to ask us to be something that we cannot be. So this series is not that. It's not about trying to be something you can't become, putting in a lot of effort like that dog to be the parrot, trying, trying to be that thing when you can't do it because we can't change on our own. You know, even at best, we follow Jesus' teachings poorly. You know, even at best, trying to follow him and obey him, we do it in an imperfect way. We just cannot do all of the things that we're called to do in following him. But Jesus can and he has. And part of the message of the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived as an example to us, but also that he could give us his righteousness. On top of that, he died on the cross to pay for our sins, that we could be forgiven and right before God. And in that moment, he took our sin on himself and he gave us his perfect life. But then, even though we are forgiven and we have a new identity in Christ, how do we live out this new life? Well, Jesus makes us a new kind of person with new kinds of desires that is able to do new kinds of things. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Taz becoming submarine, dog becoming parrot. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I want to ask you again, are you in Christ today? Because that is the starting point for the series. You can skip all of the Jesus talk. You can skip all of the God stuff and you will get something out of the series and you will grow and your life will improve and change. I really believe that. But we cannot become what we are not. We cannot try to be someone that we haven't changed to be. But in Christ, we are a new creation. Like the little girl will have in five weeks' time is born and will grow up to become who she was meant by God to be. Just like that, you and I, in Christ, are born again to a new life, to a new nature as new creations that can grow up to become who God has called us to be, like Jesus in Him. We're becoming who we already are. I'm going to end with one story. I'm not a big C.S. Lewis Narnia book guy. I know some of you are. I know that's like sacrilege for a pastor to say. But Shell read all of the Narnia books about a year ago, and she recommended the story for today, which I think you'll love. If you read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader about Prince Caspian and all of that stuff, you're going to enjoy this. To give you a little bit of context here, Eustace sounds a bit like useless, and he is. He's the character in the books that everyone loved to hate. He's selfish. He's greedy. He's whiny. He's not a great guy in the books. But he ends up in Narnia, this like other land with some of his cousins. And he ends up on this amazing adventure with Prince Caspian. They're going island to island to try and find like a bunch of knights or something. It's an amazing quest. And on one of these islands, they stop 
And Eustace goes and he does his own thing while they're reloading the ship or looking for these knights or whatever they're doing. And Eustace wanders off and he finds this cave. And as he looks inside this cave, he finds a dragon that is dying. Now that is like a once in a lifetime sight in a fantasy book. But he watches this dragon die and he waits and he makes sure that this dragon is dead before he goes in. But when he goes inside, when the dragon is dead, he finds treasure. We're talking Aladdin, Cave of Wonders, wall-to-wall treasure cave. That's what he finds. And he's over the moon. He's shoving as many gold coins and amulets and whatever he can into all of his clothes. But he's got this inner dialogue going on. This is my cave. This is my treasure. This is my stuff. I don't want anyone else to have any of this. So he wants to pack as much treasure in as he can so that when he goes onto the boat, no one else notices so that he can keep this treasure for himself. And in this kind of greedy treasure frenzy that he's going in, kind of like a sugar high, he falls asleep on top of the treasure, and when he wakes up, he's turned into a dragon. Kind of all that greed and whatever has changed him into the dragon that he had seen die earlier. Classic Eustace, am I right? And in this moment, as Eustace wakes up, and he's horrified, and he doesn't know how he's going to live, and he realizes this is a permanent thing, and he's devastated, Aslan enters the story. And Aslan is a picture of Jesus, if you didn't know that in these nine-year books. He's the lion. He's the strong one. He's the one from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And Aslan comes to Eustace and asks what's wrong and asks how he can help. And he takes Eustace outside to this beautiful well and says, take off your clothes. Now, obviously, for a dragon, they are not clothed. And Eustace realizes what Aslan means. In the book, you hear Eustace's mind going, and he says, I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things, and snakes can cast off their skins. And he takes his claws, and he starts to scratch through his skin. And scale after scale falls off, but he knows he needs to go deeper. So he goes under the skin, and he's pulling off this layer of skin, like a snake taking off of its skin. And he sheds it all, and there's this pile of skin and scales And he goes, I'm free. Thank you, Aslan. And he goes into the water and realizes he's still got the claws. He's still got the scales. He's still got the gross dino body. So he tries again. Maybe I needed to go a little bit deeper. And he sticks his claws in and he pulls. And he starts to rip off scales and tear through skin and pull off everything that is covering him. And he leaves it to one side again. And he tries to get into the water and realizes I'm still a dragon. So he does it again and again and again until he realizes that he cannot change on his own. Then the lion says to him, let me undress you. And Eustace says that he was afraid. He was afraid of the claws, but he was pretty desperate now, so he thought he'd take a risk with the lion. He says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. This is where Eustace gets a bit weird. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy-O, but it is such fun to see it coming away. It's in the book, that's not me. Well, he peeled the stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself those three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly and gross-looking than the others had been. But I turned into a boy again. Harbor City, we and our sin are like Eustace. No matter what we do, 
to remove ourselves from the scales and the skin and who we've become, we can't do in our own strength. We are unable, despite our strength, to remove that outer layer and be new again. It is only Jesus that can transform us and make us a completely new creation. And the good news of the series and the scriptures is that that is exactly what he wants to do. Can I ask you to stand with me and we're going to pray together.